you would grab a seat. Good morning, apostles. It's good to be uh, together, to worship together. Uh, As Ryan said, uh, this is his first official Sunday, and we are thrilled to have the Heiser family here. So welcome. Um, This morning, we're going to continue in our series called Silence and Solitude. In fact, we're going to wrap it up. It's been uh, a six-week series looking at this ancient biblical practice together, and I I personally have loved it. I don't know what it's been like for you, but it's been uh, just a gift to me personally. I feel like the Lord is really working on some things uh, through this with me. In fact, um, I was just reminded how much I need this and how significant the need is for, uh, I think, a recovery of this practice of silence and solitude. I was at a coffee shop uh, here in the Heights this week, and I was reading uh, Ruth Haley Barton's book. I was just kind of going back over it again, uh, Invitation to Silence and Solitude. And as I was sitting there, the barista came by, and it, I guess it caught his eye because he asked, he said, oh, are you reading, that, is that for fun or for work? And I, of course, said, yes, it's both. Uh, and uh, he was like, oh, what's it about? And so I, I, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, is, is he a follower of Jesus? How do I kind of put this? So I just I kind of simply said, well, it's, it's a book that really is about rest and, and just kind of being able to, to find quiet in a world that is so hectic and busy and just this digital age where we're always swiping or popping or looking at something, you know, on our screen. And, and he, he just, he paused and he was like, wow. He's like, he's like, what's that book called again? He's like, I need that. He's like, I need, I need, and he literally got his phone out and he ordered it on Amazon right there while we were talking. And it just, it brought home to me, uh, again, just how desperate the need for this is, that, that people around us are desperate for this, for, for silence, for solitude, and ultimately to encounter God in that place. And so, um, so my hope is, if you've got nothing else from this series, my hope is that you have become convinced of that, that for you personally, you, you desperately need this practice of silence and solitude, that you desperately need uh, a different way. I think what, that's what my friend at the coffee shop was, was tapping into. He needs a different way. What he's doing is not working. I think all of us sense that. We need a different way, and Jesus is inviting us into a, a different way, into a way of life with him, into taking up his way of life um, for us to slow down, to rest, to learn to be quiet and alone with God. So I hope that, if nothing else, you've taken that. Um, and uh, just the fact that we need it and others around us need it. Um, so this morning we're going to wrap, wrap things up, uh, look at Elijah one more time. We've been looking at Elijah, one of our models for this practice of silence and solitude. And so if you would, open your Bible or your Bible app or the blue Bible in the seat in front of you and grab that to 1 Kings uh, 19, those verses we just heard read. 1 Kings 19. 9 through 18. And as you're turning there, um, just to remind you, we're, we're looking at this uh, moment in Elijah's life because it offers us uh, what we've described as kind of some stages or some different aspects that might help us think through how we can enter into this uh, practice of silence and solitude. And we've identified seven uh, of these kind of movements or aspects. And we've talked through each of them, resting, waiting, Feeling, 
naming, hearing. Last week we talked about transformation, and then today we're going to talk about re-entry. Going back into the world on the other side of that experience of encountering God, of being alone in that quiet place with God. And so we're going to look um, at that moment in Elijah's life where he re-entered the world. Now, as we think about re-entry, I want to, uh, for a moment, just kind of step back uh, and take kind of the, the big view here when we're talking about this practice. Because the reality is that taking up this practice itself is, is very intimidating, I think. I don't know if you would agree. Taking up this practice of silence and solitude can feel really overwhelming if you, if you really earnestly are kind of stepping into this. It can be hard. And it's been hard for me as I've, as I've taken this, uh, this to heart this past six weeks. It's been hard for me. Uh, and in a way, as I was sharing with somebody else, it's felt a little bit like, like a detox process, like almost like a busyness, like detox or cleansing. And, you know, detox uh, can be a really good thing. You know, cleansing can be a really good thing. But it can also be a very uncomfortable uh, thing. It can be a very difficult process. And so I think there's a sense in which Entering into silence and solitude can feel like that. And in part, because this practice of silence and solitude, what happens is we discover something about ourselves. And what we discover is that we have been starving ourselves of the presence of God. If we haven't been used to taking this up as a practice, we we starve ourselves of this intimate place of the presence of God. And And I think some of us aren't even aware of how desperately hungry we are for the presence of God, that we are starving. And it's because we've been feeding ourselves on, on the emptiness of some other things in our life, the emptiness of noise or a busyness or of screens or of whatever it is. And, and our soul, as a result, is emaciated. And so it, it's almost like there, there's, a, there's an anorexia of the soul. You know, you stand in front of the mirror and what you see is skin and bones, but to you, it's healthy, right? And, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Our souls are starving for more of God. Ruth Haley Barton, in her book, when she first took up this practice, she says this about it. She says, I realized I was like a starving child who's given a bowl of rice. We've all seen those pictures, right, of, of a starving child with the, with the bloated belly who gets that, that first meal. That's what she says it's like. She said it felt like that entering into God's presence. The first time. She said, I felt like I was a starving child given a bowl of rice, her first real food in a long time. The child is so hungry that once she receives her first portion, she grabs it and shovels it in as fast as she can without caring that she's slurping and spilling it down the front of her dress. It is not a pretty sight. The good news is eventually it does the job. The emptiness gets filled so that sooner or later the child can look up from the bowl wipe her mouth and engage with others on the basis of something other than hunger and fear. See, at first, this practice of silence and solitude, it, it's so intense and it's so overwhelming. And, and the insatiability of our souls, the, the desperate hunger of our souls, it may frighten us. But when we come to terms with it, Once we experience God's presence, it's a kind of deep soul satisfaction. That God meets us in that place and he satisfies the deepest hunger of our lives. And it's something that no one else and nothing else can give us, that kind of satisfaction. 
And so that's, that's what happens uh, for Elijah on Mount Horeb. That's what happens to him in this moment when the Lord comes to him and, and passes by, when he encounters God. It says in verse 13, it says he, he was so overwhelmed, so taken with, with God's holiness and the, and the overwhelming sense of his presence that he covered his face with his cloak. Elijah had come there feeling burned out. He'd come there alone, frustrated, but there on the mountain, he encountered the holiness of God, the presence of God, and he was reminded how awesome God is. He was reminded in that moment that there is a God and that in God alone he could find rest and healing and wholeness. And I wonder, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever come into God's presence and experienced that, that healing, that wholeness, that that deep soul rest that you're longing for? Maybe it was an intense time in personal prayer. Maybe it was here one Sunday morning, just in the midst of worship. You just, you encountered God in such a powerful way. You just couldn't deny it. God was there and at work in your heart. Maybe it was on a personal retreat. Wherever it was, whatever it was, we, we probably have all had some kind of a mountaintop experience like Elijah has here. Where in the depth of who you are, in the secret place of your heart, the deepest part of who you are, you encounter God. And it's incredible. It's incredible. You feel totally safe. You feel completely loved. In that moment, you feel satisfied. And yet, in that moment, you want more. It's this weird place where you feel totally safe, totally satisfied, and yet you want more. You're like, God, more of this. I don't want to leave this place. I don't want to leave this moment. I want more. And so you want to linger. You want to stay there. Y'all know what I'm talking about, that feeling? Yeah, you, you want to stay right there. And I imagine that's what Elijah is feeling. <laughs> he wants to stay right there after all he's been through, remember? And he comes to this place. He's standing there on the mountain in the presence of God. And he's like, I just want to stay here in your presence, Lord. I imagine that's how he felt. Which is what happens in verse 15 so interesting to me. Look what... What happens in verse 15? What does God say to him? The Lord says, go. The Lord says to Elijah, go. He was there in God's presence, satisfied, wanting more. Lord, let's just stay right here in this moment. And the Lord says, Elijah, it's time to go. It's time to go. And he says that to you and me. In our place of, of encounter, where they, we encounter God in, in that moment. And there's this part of us that never wants to leave it. And yet God says, okay, it's time for you to go. For you to go back out into the world. To re-enter. And the question is, why? Why, why can't we just stay in that moment with the Lord? Why can't we just stay in his presence? It's, it's so incredible. Why can't we stay there with you, Lord? Why do you say go? Well, it's because what happens in the Lord's presence, what happens in this practice of silence and solitude is not just for our sake. It's for the sake of others. It's not just for us. It's not this self-focused, kind of self-indulgent, therapeutic moment that's for me. 
That's not what happens in silence and solitude. When we're with God, he, he pours into us. He, he encourages us. He, he meets us in that place and recharges us, and then he sends us out for his purposes. It isn't just to stay with him, but so that we can go with him. We can go back into the world and join him on his mission. He blesses us, in other words, so that we then can be a blessing to others. That's what happens in silence and solitude. But notice, God doesn't just say, go to Elijah. What does he say? He says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. It's interesting, isn't it? Go back the way you came. Very intentional direction. Not go a a new way, but back to the world you left. Back to the circumstances from which you came. Often when we get to a mountaintop, at least this is my experience, you've had to go through a valley, right? Often when we get to a mountaintop, like Elijah, we've come from circumstances that have kind of driven us to that place where we're desperately seeking the Lord. We're lonely, we're tired, we're anxious. Maybe we're desperate for the Lord because our marriage is struggling. We, We are struggling with our job. We hate our job. We, we, we don't know what to do with our finances. Finances. Our bodies are failing us. Whatever it is, there's some valley that we've ventured through and then we've met God on the mountaintop. And so often we come off that mountaintop experience and we want to go a new way. We want to go a different way. Not back that way, a different way. We want to go into different circumstances. I'm sure that's what Elijah is hoping for, but God says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. In other words, God says, look, Elijah, the world has not changed. But you have changed. Elijah is not the same man he was before. As he re-enters these same circumstances, he now knows God is with him. He's not alone. He knows that the Lord hasn't forsaken him. He knows that God has been in his circumstances and will be in those same circumstances as he reenters the world. He knows that because he's been with the Lord. And I think what's important for us to realize is that's true for us. As we leave this place of silence and solitude, we, we enter into the world with a different perspective. We have been changed by having been with the Lord. And it changes us in all kinds of ways. It frees us from our fears, anxiety, the power of sin. We talked about this last week. It frees us from the lies that we believed because God speaks truth to us. And now we're able in the truth to see what God sees and to see the ways that he's at work in those circumstances. So that no matter how difficult they are, we know God is with us. We have been with God and so we re-enter the world, and we re-enter it as people, I would say, who are free, who are free to love other people. You see, if we're never with God, think about it this way. If we are never with God, then we can never really know God. And if we don't really know God, then we can't really know the love of God. It's also true that if we're never with God, how can we ever really know ourselves? And how can we ever possibly really love ourselves? And so if we don't know God or ourselves, if, if we don't know the love of God, if we don't love ourselves, how in the world could we ever really love anyone else? The more that we're present with God, the greater our capacity 
to be present in the lives of others in love. God's love is poured into us, right? It, it, it pours into us and then it just, it begins to overflow. We don't go out and, and love our neighbors now because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. That's the rule, love your neighbor. And we go and we love our neighbors because, because we long to share with them what we ourselves have received in the presence of a loving God. It's transformed our hearts and so we long for that to just spill over into the lives of others as we reenter the world. Again, to quote Ruth Haley Barton, she, she says this. She says, I found that I don't move, I'm not moved beyond solitude. Rather, by God's grace, I bring the quietness of my solitude into the present moment. Solitude isn't just about creating the right conditions outside myself in a retreat center or the quiet of my room. The quietness of solitude becomes an inner condition within which I am able to recognize and respond to the stirrings, to the voice to the presence of God himself. See, solitude, time alone with God in the quiet, what it does is it brings us full circle. It brings us full circle in the sense that we, we can now enter back into life in the human community with God. And even if nothing in our circumstances has changed, we have changed. We've changed. And that's what the world needs. The world needs people who are re-entering it, who have been changed from the inside out because they have been with Jesus. That's what people in your life need. And so here's, here's the paradoxical reality, I think, of silence and solitude when it comes to, to this re-entry idea. What's hard to get our heads around is the greatest thing that you can do, that I can do to love other people in our lives is be with God. The greatest thing you can do to love other people in your life is to be alone in the quiet with God. Jesus knew this. In Luke 5, 15 and 16, it says, Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people, bigger and bigger crowds of people, came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. See, the more people that were around him that needed to know God's love for them, what was his response? To love them, but also to be with the Father even more. Even more often to pull away. And so the greatest thing that we can do, the greatest thing you can do to love your friend, The greatest thing you can do to love your spouse, to love your children. The greatest thing you can do to love your children is actually to spend time alone with God. The truth is when I don't spend time in silence and solitude, you know, just personally, when I don't spend time alone with God, you know who suffers the most? It's the people closest to me. It's the people around me that, that I love. Just this past week, uh, one morning, we were trying to get out the door for school. We were running late. I know none of you can relate. Uh, and we were trying to get out the door, and Bennett did something, and it really upset me, and I lashed out at him. I just lashed out. Again, I know I'm the only one who's ever done that with their kids, but I lashed out. 
And I've been thinking about, like, why, why did I do that? Why did I overreact that way, right? Because I felt dad guilt all day, just terrible dad guilt all day. And I was like, what is going on with me? And I realized all week I've just been too busy. I haven't been with you, Lord. I haven't been alone with you. Again, as Barton says, she says, without silence and solitude, you know what happens? She says this. I think this is so great. She says, the broken places that have not been healed and transformed in God's presence become hard edges in our personality that slice and dice other people when they bump up against them. So true. Bonhoeffer said this in Life Together. He said, uh, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. If you can't be alone, you are dangerous to other people. If you can't be alone with the Lord, you're dangerous to your friends. You're a danger to your family, to one another here in the church. Without time alone with God, we leave ourselves at the mercy of our inner compulsions, our inner fears, our selfishness. We live as people on the prowl for ways to fill our emptiness. And we try to take that from one another. We try to take from one another what only God can give. But if we know God's presence, if we know his presence in us and with us, then our hard edges, those razor sharp edges, they get softened. They get filed down. And the love of God is not only poured into us, but it begins to pour out of us. We become safe people. We become a safe place for those around us who are seeking God, who are desperate to hear from the Lord. And so we need, we need this time alone. That's the bottom line. We need it, and the people around us need it. The people in our lives need us, desperately need us to spend time alone with God. And so here's the question I just want to leave you with today. How much time do you need to stay grounded in God and his love for you? How much time alone with God do you need for that to be true in your life? For that to be true for you? How much time do you need with him for his love and wisdom to flow more consistently through your life? How much time would that take? Whatever the answer is for you, this is what I would say about that. That has to be non-negotiable in your life. It's got to be non-negotiable. And this is not legalism, okay? This isn't about just following rules. It's, it's not just another thing to put on the religious list. Check, silence and solitude. Got it, right? No, this is a practice that's about the health of your soul and about loving other people. Just like you need three meals a day and a few snacks here and there, you need this practice. I said a few. Easy. Um, a few snacks. You, that's, think about your time with God like that. That's just healthy, right? You never look at that and be like, you are legalistic about food. You would say, oh, yeah, we need to eat. To be healthy, we need, we need to eat. And the Lord wants to feed us. Some of you are starving. You're starving for the presence of God. 
And so the Lord longs for us to eat, to be satisfied, to sustain us, to fill us so that we can overflow. You know, nothing satisfies. Nothing satisfies you like the love of God. Nothing can fill your life like the love of God. You need time alone with him in the quiet. I just want to end with this quote. It says, from the silence breaks forth a charity that overflows in the service of the neighbor without counting the cost. It will witness to Christ anywhere and always. Availability will become delightsome and easy for in each person the should will see the face of her beloved. Hospitality will be deep and real for a silent heart is a loving heart. And a loving heart is a hospice to the world. See, you need time alone with God. And one of the reasons is, is because people around you are hungry. My friend in the coffee shop, he is starving for the presence of God in his life. We are hungry for God. And so we need this practice. We need to learn how to be with God so that we can be a people who demonstrate the love of God to a world that desperately needs it. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would or cultivate in us a heart that longs to be with you. And Lord, if we, in the last six weeks, we've just said, I'm just too busy. <laughs> Lord, would you help us see that? Lord, that, that that's what you're trying to address. If we've been too busy to take up this practice, Lord, to help us get to a place where we see it is, it's like eating. We can't live without it. We cannot live without you. We can't go forth in the mission that you've called us to, to, to bear witness to who you are and your love in us and for those around us. We cannot do it if we can't be alone with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, again, just cultivate a heart within each of us that longs to be with you and makes that a priority in our lives, that you might be glorified and that many, many might come to a saving faith in Jesus. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.